Welcome to Black Creative Healing, a space for radical conversation, mindful collaboration, and holistic visioning centering Black communities. I'm Adenike Webb. And I'm Natasha Thomas. We are your co-conspirators, co-facilitators, conversational doulas, and fellow travelers on this journey. I want to talk about uh, censorship for a hot second. So you know how Hamilton came out recently. And, um, you know, whatever you feel about Hamilton, I know my feelings about it are very complex. Um, but Lin-Manuel was talking about how anything over one instance of the F word is an automatic R rating. And because he wanted the show to be more accessible to people and their families, the way he phrased it was, I literally gave two Fs so that we could have... <laughs> So that people could access this content without the barrier of an R rating. And so I was looking back at our conversation and there were exactly three instances of the F-bomb that I dropped. (laughs) And I'm not usually, I'm not usually down with censorship. I want people to be able to say what they want to say. But I'm also very keenly aware that conversations about gender and sexuality often get categorized as adult conversations when really the conversation we have with Dio is accessible to everybody. Yeah. And I want it to be accessible to everybody. So I actually went through the transcripts and you I took did, them out. I took two F's out. <laughs> <laughs> There's one of them that I literally can't remove because it's in the background of something else being said. Uh, okay. So I was like, that one F stays, but I did take the other two out. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so uh, you're welcome, folks. Don't get used to it. <laughs> Giovanni La Beja. I am a dance artist and queer performance historian archivist. I identify as trans femme and use the pronouns she, her. And I would say the best way to surmise what it is that I do is sort of meet myself at the intersection of my Blackness and my Latinoness and my spirituality and my queerness all of those things coming together to form what is uh, sort of a world that I'm trying to convey to people via the various research and dance projects that I do. And all of this has sort of been very like, it's transformational and constantly evolving. Like you and I have known each other for years. um, Mm -hmm. And I've really, really loved seeing the archivist come out of you like (laughs) over the last couple of years (laughs) because I it's history that I've 
not been very familiar with, you mm-hmm. know, especially the ballroom history and, and all of the legends and names and video footage that you're finding and sharing. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit like more about yeah. that? I, it's interesting to me, like, I very often have to remind myself that language is a tool that we have to use to um, make things precise when we're talking Mm. about ideas and people. So recently I have adopted this, you know, sort of title, the term of archivist, um, because I realized that that simply means researcher or somebody that is, is an expert or somebody that conveys a certain sense of expertise on a particular area of history Mm. um and I think for me it was also a realization of not everybody knows this no I it was Mm -hmm. I would I think for a long time I was taking it for granted this Mm. you know of course I mean it's ballroom like everybody sees Paris is burning and of course everybody's gonna look up this and watch this and do 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 and then I realized like no you're you're doing that you're doing that research because you you are interested in it and you I mean even in ballroom I find that not everyone is is in as interested or involved in the digging up of the history to sort of tell the story of the entire community and the scene and the culture yeah Um, so for me it is it's always about telling a story it's always about making clear certain connections between what I kind of think about as mainstream Black culture, what is sort of exists Mm. in the consensus of Blackness and sort of anything that you could very easily refer to in another Black person and be like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh. Whereas I feel like ballroom should be that and it is not. Okay, Mm -hmm. okay. I I mean, I I often say online, ballroom history is Black history. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about Black history, because so often queer Black people are left out of that conversation and out of that timeline of mainstream Black history, again, you're not seeing that, like, when you're talking about the beginning of Black ballroom, you're talking about the late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. The reason that Black ballroom happened is because Crystal Abeja was tired of losing balls to the white queens because balls at her time were about drag queens mostly. Yes. Mm. Drag queen to say at that time, meaning really anyone who society was to identify as a man, but otherwise presented and or identified as a woman. Right. So we're talking about a time where balls are a pageant style uh, performance yeah. uh, between varying women of trans experience. Even at this time, because they started in the 50s and into the 60s, they were discriminatory. They were racist. They yeah. were segregated. Yeah. Some balls were just for Black queens. Some balls were just for white queens. And if they were mixed, if you were Black, you were either painting white and losing or you were presenting Black and you were losing. This happened to Crystal LaBeja one too many times. And you can see her in an act of rebellion in the documentary, The Queen, storm out of the pageant. And that is the beginning of Black Ballroom. Mm. Mm. I say ballroom history is Black history because what is also, that happened in 1967, 1968. 
what is also happening in 1967, 1968? Exactly. Right, right. Martin exactly. Luther King was killed. In 68. In 68. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. How do we not know that it is the, it is the underbelly rumblings of the entire country fueling Crystal in her head? Right. To, that is mm-hmm. why she says, at the end, she's going off on this fam- infamous read. Mother Sabrina uh, hey. Darling, the organizer of the ball who uh, discriminated against her in this documentary. Sabrina says, you're showing your color and you're doing it in bad taste. Oh. She says that to say, you're at a ball and you know good and hell well your black ass shouldn't be acting out like this. Mm. Uh-huh. Crystal responds, I have a right to show my color, darling. It's 1967, 1968. Of course she's going to say that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that is to connect ballroom history to mainstream Black history. Right. Is to realize that ballroom is a direct product of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It it, It is to then connect all of the different styles of music and dance and art and culture that came out of ballroom in the 70s and 80s back up to hip-hop culture that was also being born at that time yeah out of disco culture that was also being born at that time yes out of the black fashion culture that was also being born at that time it's to connect all of those things and when you also find out that some of these people who you do know out of mainstream black culture we're also going to balls. We're connected. It also makes sense. Yes, like it ties back into what we were talking about with Violetta Thompson in, in episode 101 of the multiple roles and spaces that people are occupying at any given moment. And we, like just, we as a society are only seeing the lead actors, not knowing that those lead actors right. are moving in and out of various supporting roles and other right. spaces. When you're talking about ballroom, Yes, you are talking about an underground culture of queer competition and style, Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you're also talking about an institution that houses a lineage of Black trans women performers, Mm -hmm. Black trans women artists, Black gay performers, Black gay artists, dancers. Uh, If you want to talk about commentary as a sort of like poetic style, you're talking about orators and and, um, uh, MCs, uh, people that organize community. Yes. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because like you said, so many things that we are familiar with, we being like the consensus of black culture like you said like terminology that's come out of ballroom that's commonplace now you know right. everybody talking about reading and shade and slaying right. and all of these right. things that exactly they are ballroom yeah it's it's interesting it's, i mean because we often say like you know we meaning black queer people because mm. of course we know this that yeah existing in that underbelly and undercurrent of black community we are often the progenerators of things that then become popularized within black community and then from there become popularized into the masses outside right so Mm -hmm. existing at that exit like original sort of bottom point or grassroots community there 
it's interesting to see language and art and music and dance and style from your community, historically even, Mm. coming up with things and then to see it replicate itself into popular society. Even to me was even like something like that I don't think even anybody sort of thinks about. The style of runway walking. Yes. That uh, entire language of movement is black ballroom. Like, yes. You don't get wow. this style of, of walking through a room and displaying a garment. That is, that's black line dancing to a beat. The thing that they took out of, they took away was uh, dancing it to a beat. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. Wow. So I, that, is a, that is also goes back for me, the importance of telling that story. Right. Show us where that is, like where that history is. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I was just thinking, um, you know, Black culture is, is such a, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's not, like we often want to treat it like a monolith you know Mm -hmm. like there's one way to be black and there's one way to understand it and I think even within what we might want to term mainstream black culture we have our prejudices we have our hierarchies and all that stuff and I was thinking Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. you know just now Dio when you were saying a lot of the dances the language the movement Mm -hmm. that comes out of black ballroom culture then it percolates up into black mainstream culture and then up into into what might be the popular culture. It's like Mm -hmm. the way the black culture at large talks about being appropriated. It's like that happens. It seems like in a similar way that has happened with black ballroom culture and it's done by members of the mainstream black culture in a sort of way. Just listening to what you just said, that just occurred to me. Yeah, and there's this, yeah. there's got this double down effect then of yeah. like, cause I know the rage and frustration that mainstream mm-hmm. black culture feels when our shit gets co-opted. Right. Yeah, like, and it's interesting inside, because inside. It, right, and it's interesting because it it comes from, at least for me, black people's unique ability and responsibility to determine what is cool Mm. and so as a black queer person you uh, you know we're just simply existing creating these you know again slang term terminology uh music dance art all of this and when it becomes cool enough Mm-hmm. for black mainstream society to then adapt and take on into the body of what is normal blackness uh. that then becomes cool enough to mm. to perpetuate outside of blackness mm-hmm. because of course black people are cool and we want to do what they do uh. and, but you're then you're then entirely taking out what is that original root? And for right. a lot of it, you know, when it is, it, whether it's just terms, reading, uh, shade, throwing shade, um, girl, sis, niece, mother, mm. daughter, um, whether it's that, whether it's the, the like I said, this style of runway walking, whether yes. it's um, certain styles of music, um, yes. the, amou- the amount of history that is in ballroom via house music is ridiculous. Um, dance now we see a lot of people finding Vogue interesting yet again because this happened already in 1991 when Paris is Burning came out right so now again we see this 
window sort of coming back around to ballroom. And now that we have this window, it's like, it's cool enough again. Mm. Um, but I think it's, again, it, it, I go back to, it's important to tell this story because in those moments when that window isn't on the community, in those moments when people aren't paying attention, in those moments when it's not cool enough, uh. when the window is closed and no one's looking, that is the part of the history that doesn't get told. Right, mm-hmm. right. And that's where mm-hmm. some of the most foundational, phenomenal shit is being built. Exactly. And it's being right. missed. <laughs> right, exactly. Wow. I, I, had, a, I had a thought. My, my mind likes to run into different things mm. as people talk. And as you're talking about cool, it occurred to me that cool kind of comes from being resilient, right? In mm. a sort of a way, like, just follow me for a second. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so. I think I feel you. I think I feel you though. <laughs> you think you feel me? So there's a sense that, you know, you're, in black ballroom culture, you are doing what you do to be yourself, to be authentic, to survive mm-hmm. in the face of incredible discrimination and oppression. But you do what you do in spite of it all. And people mm-hmm. admire that, right? They recognize that resilience. They recognize that authenticity. And they're like, well, I want some of that. I um. want to be like that. Mm-hmm. That must be cool. And mm-hmm. then it gets co-opted. And that yeah. just made me think like how black in how other aspects of black culture has been considered cool and how when you look at um you know like those 50s movies with the rebels and how they were considered <laughs> the cool kids or right. whatever they're the kids they were the ones standing up to authority they were the ones who didn't yeah, care what happened and were being themselves in the face of this oppressive system and everybody's like well i want to be that because on some level now i'm getting all philosophical because on some <laughs> level People recognize that how things are is not cool. It's not right. Right. It suppresses Uh, who you are, you know? And when you find those people who are brave enough Mm -hmm. to be themselves, Mm -hmm. then you want to do that. You want to take it on in the hopes maybe that by being someone like them, you can find yourself. And I stop Mm. there for a moment. Oh, and I'm going to pick it up now. I'm going to pick it up because this, what you just said. Okay. Okay. So yesterday... (laughs) So this week I've been in this like academics for black survival and wellness thing. And we had a queer black academic space yesterday and we all like got our lives. Like you could tell we were so starved for each other that we were just like word vomit. And one of the, one of the spaces where word vomit occurred was around this idea of, of co-opting and how, what happens when the dominant culture sees that like, the injustice, right? The, the not coolness of the world and the uh-huh. coolness of the person standing up to it is that there's sort of this like disconnect that occurs that's rooted in individuality and capitalism mm-hmm. that says, oh, okay, I, I'm also experiencing this shit. I need mm-hmm. to stand up to the system. And that when they start to take on what they perceive as actions of taking on the system, Mm-hmm. that they don't actually have to deal with the consequences of any of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People who are most marginalized are the ones who have to deal with those consequences. So the whole conversation last night sort of shifted around this idea of individualism versus community and how like, and Hakeem Leonard and I talked about this in our last video episode of, of Black Creative Healing, that lyric in the Jamila Woods song, uh, Baldwin, where she says, you don't know a thing about our story, tell it wrong all the time. You don't know a thing about our glory, want to steal my baby shine. Like you don't actually understand what you're seeing. So when you try to mm-hmm. take it on, and you co-opt it 
you are perpetuating colonizing harm because you are mm-hmm. doing it in the absence of the community that birthed it. Mm-hmm. And in the absence of community, yes. period. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> community yeah. and family is huge yeah. in ballroom. Yeah, and in I mean, culture in general. I, I think um, to go back to what you were saying, I didn't think about um, this idea of resilience. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think... It's it's very true. I think you t- hit something there because I think that coolness or what it is to be cool, what it is um, to be stylish, mm. often it does come with a, a, a sort of idea that it stands against something, uh, whether mm-hmm. it is simply against the norm or whether it is against your... The, you know, the, the traumatic experience that we know that you embody and and mm. in resilience and resistance against that, you have embodied and, and expressed such a level of style that people desire it. Mm. Um, so I think it, I think that resilience idea is very true because I think uh, so often, if you think about things that have popped into popular culture in that timeline, that history of whether it's just entertainment or style of fashion, um, the people who are lying at the root of things, who are the progenitors and the creators of things, are often usually the the poorer and mm-hmm. more oppressed people. Yes. And it's for yes. those reasons that you're not seeing their ideas be created. You're seeing them being stolen. Ah, yes. Um, and I think that ties into what you're saying about um, this, you know, this... very capitalistic way of participating Mm. but not knowing the history of something not having to participate in the full reality or community of it yes um and i mean that for me it all definitely strikes a chord especially with identifying as trans femme and uh holding a lot of transgender people um people of trans experience gender non-conforming people very close to me because it's how do i put it it is um so much of that identity and experience i think at least for me and as i have also spoken about with my brothers and sisters it's an expression and a an, an unearthing mm. of the true identity of who you are, mm-hmm. and that that experience and that journey of that timeline that it takes you to get there is your transition. Uh. And so often, what people are mm. perceiving as a performative bending of social norms is more so a person trying to actualize themselves. Mm. And so when you are talking about an entire community of people who have that similar experience of simply trying to live in a fuller version of themselves Mm -hmm. and constantly being pacified and silenced, Mm -hmm. it is even more insulting to steal from that community yes. mm-hmm. because their expression that you are perceiving to be 
a performance uh. is an act of resilience and survival. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. There are so many people that I know and myself included. If I did not have the ability to vogue at certain moments of my life, I probably would not be here. Mm-hmm. There are people that get up out of the bed voguing, listening to house music because that it triggers something in their spirit that then says, Oh, I can take this one more day. Yes. Because oh, I'm Jesus. sickening. Because I'm sickening. And when you see me pump down the street, honey, mm. you see it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so then when you take that and transform it to, mm-hmm. Oh, I want to walk like that, you're you're missing the whole damn thing. All of it. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm about to like jump up. Like this is another one of those moments where I'm like, y'all don't have the video. So you can't see how we are all just like (laughs) the physical energy of this conversation. Holy shit. But yeah. And, uh, and it brings up another question too, Mm. because so if mainstream society is not seeing that, if the black mainstream is not seeing that, and there's so much harm being done mm-hmm. when they do what they do, thinking they're seeing what they think they're seeing. Do we actually want them to see, like, what would it look like? Right, right. Right? What would it look like if people were seeing for real and understanding for real? Mm-hmm. Is that even possible? Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting you say, like, question whether or not we want them to see it or be all because that's something Mm. that I have thought of in my like you know arc of our archival research right when you like peel back the layers you know we're talking about ballroom so when you peel back the layers of ballroom community and the windows that that opens up to better understanding black queer community yeah um you when you peel back a community to its like what is often referred to as the underground era like Mm. even house music even the history of house music when you go back to the underground roots of it you begin to realize oh wow this was like a very black style of music that was not popular at one point but then boom of course the window shifted to it and then the same thing happened and that is it's it's interesting i feel like you know when communities are still in that underground era Mm. or in those underground moments when people aren't paying attention right as you said earlier that's often when the most special moments and things are being done and created yeah on the flip side of that if you don't allow outside (laughs) Right. Uh, perception or eyes on to try right. and better understand it. Right. They simply won't understand it. Right. Or you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or themselves so. even. Like for me right. as a as a as a queer person who I mean I didn't watch and I've told you this before, Dio, like Paris is burning didn't come into my life until like very recently, like the past couple right. of years. Like I was completely oblivious to ballroom culture um, for far too long. And I feel mm-hmm. like in getting to see um, to see that and then to see the history that you're sharing, that I'm coming to understand collective queer history 
mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. that helps me to understand myself and my queerness better. Not that it's about me because it isn't, but I'm, yeah, it's one of those, those ideas that when you center the most marginalized people that everybody, everybody benefits. Like that's not the right. point for everybody exactly. to benefit, but it is a byproduct. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because it is, even though now mm. ballroom culture and ballroom scenes and ballroom community exists all around the world. Right. When you go about looking at ballroom in a historical way, ballroom goes back to New York. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Ballroom goes back to, ballroom specifically goes back to New York. And so that is to say, even within Black queer community and yes. people, ballroom is not a history or an idea that is held commonly. No. People don't all participate or know about it but again in this idea this ripple effect of cool and, and of, uh, of co-opting things there are black queer people who are using these words using these slangs taking part in these styles that were created within ballroom right and then simply perpetuated while outside of it and so to tell that story as you've said it is to to talk about a ball is to talk about a, a, a very well-oiled machine. Yeah, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> so, I mean, child, they be starting late and we go late, but they're organized. Yes. The, the DJ says, pump the beat. Like, yes. you're talking about a lineage of people, multiple yes. lineages of people. I mean, I often compare ballroom to... Santeria. Yes, thank you. That was the transition I was just going to get us into. (laughs) I make that comparison because it is to to study ballroom is to look at a lineage of houses. Yes. Made up of mothers and fathers. Yes. Who walked balls. (laughs) Yes. Like it's it's to talk about the same type of people perpetuating the same idea across cultures. So yes, those are diasporic practices. You have to tell the story to make these connection points clear. Because, and I mean, I think I experience it often as an artist. There's like the reason that I can vogue to an Ochun song. Mm. It's because these two things are connected somewhere and I have to figure out why. Ah, mm. yes, yes. They are not divorced in your mind. <laughs> they are not divorced mm. in history. Right. Yeah, they are African diasporic practices in action. Right, exactly. I mean, to talk about Santeria, you know, yeah, we're talking about a people, Afro-Cuban specifically, but Afro-Latino people, Afro-Caribbean people who were taken through a system of slavery and enslavement and somehow held onto their religious roots well enough to then reform yes. a, a mm-hmm. branch or a semblance of that or a new version of it that works for their new surroundings and their new version of community. Right. It is also often said that many of those people who played a major role in the history of Santeria were queer we're lesbians, we're gay, we're a part of the queer community. So it is also to say those parallels exist between this iterance of Black 
queer, oppressed community trying to hold on to a sense of identity and protect themselves. And so they come up with a system of houses. They come up with a system of institutions Mm. to create Mm. families, new versions of nuclear families, chosen families that Mm. are initiatory. Yes. And surrounded by ceremony. I mean, that is what a ball is. Is it not a ceremony? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People walking, not a part of a system of initiation to walk a ball multiple times is to grow in status and ultimately become legendary. Yes. Mm -hmm. Same thing in Santeria, to go through your system of initiations is to ultimately become crowned. The parallels exist there because you're, again, referring to an iterance Mm -hmm. of Black, queer, oppressed community trying to protect themselves and it is a brand new grid like to use a term that i I think i heard in like that little bit of juju podcast um, Mm -hmm. where she talks about the grids that are created by these african diasporic religions and that ifa you know and the tradition that exists on the african continent is its own grid and when you Mm -hmm. are looking at at santeria lukumi at vodou at any of those um uh traditions that came out of the Middle Passage and evolved in the Caribbean, those are their own grid. When you're looking at hoodoo in the U.S., that is its own grid. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. they're all connected, but they are Mm -hmm. all entirely unique branches to themselves, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think to... Again, to tell that story, Mm. to, to make clear the parallels that exist right is to reinforce you know we were talking about before whether we want people to see it again yeah oftentimes communities are at their most vibrant when nobody's paying attention right right but in the moments that people are you do have to (laughs) It's ironic the use of this word. You have to kind of capitalize on mm. that moment. Yeah, you have to leverage them. Mm. Right. To, to, to take it because, you, you're, again, we're talking about oppressed communities. We're talking about people who are shunned away, oppressed away, yeah. uh, discriminated against, abused, publicly killed, yeah. violated, exploited, ignored. Mm existing under the un- on the underbelly of the underbelly of the uh, people. Uh, uh, mm. yeah, yeah. And so to live in that is to live in misunderstanding. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. And so I when the what, world I'm, yeah, oh, go sorry. ahead. No, no, I didn't mean to cut you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I was just thinking as you were talking about do do you let people in to see what it is to know and you're talking about story. I think about the people who create, like, who've created this way of being, they're the ones who have, who should have control over that story, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. They're the ones who should be able to say, this is when and how you can come in and be part of the culture. This mm-hmm. is when and how you can engage with, with what we do and how we do. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and, 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 and I think it's okay in a sort of a way to say, capitalize like you just did deal or leverage mm. like 
like that is the ideal situation like if you want to come into my house and want to get my food and my stuff <laughs> well let me tell you under what conditions you're going to come into my house and get my food right. and my stuff uh-huh. yeah. by all means <laughs> right but i think so often that doesn't happen that doesn't get to happen no i just want to barge in yeah. <laughs> right yeah they would rather barge in and steal your food leave and say they made it oh. Ooh. <laughs> 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 or they'd okay. rather go to the store they'd rather go to the store and buy a box processed version of what you made and say that they made that it's yes. not <laughs> and say it's the uh, same and say it's the yeah. same. like they're just and I, I keep thinking back to how you were talking about how important it is to like tell these stories and how connected they are to mm-hmm. every bit of history that we think we know mm-hmm. right but are missing and like I, I think about like Haiti and how there is and Vodou and how intricately they're connected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is no liberation in Haiti right. without Vodou. Right. It, without right. Vodou, that that would never have happened. <laughs> right. Um, and that's I, so true of so many other places. Exactly. It's so easy to think everything is disconnected or compartmentalized, right? right. Like what happens over here has nothing to do with what happens over here. Oof. But, but what you just said, Dio, it's like, it's all interconnected. Like, right. and, and that, and it kind of comes back to the whole idea that when we, mm-hmm. we want to fight racism, we're not just fighting that ism. That's not the mm. only form of oppression that we need to tackle. Right. Cause it's all interconnected. Racism is part of, of sexism is part of homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, right. and ableism. ableism. It's all <laughs> connected. Right. Right. It's all connected. Exactly. And, um, and, and, and that another thing you said earlier, as you were talking about how people came together in the ballroom community in houses and tracking lineage and, mm-hmm. and, and, and comparing that to the lineage that you track in Santeria, like mm-hmm. the idea of resilience comes back to me again. Yeah. Like absolutely the whole, the fact that, these people, you know, were stolen initially from their countries in the, in the continent of Africa, divorced mm-hmm. from what they know, mm-hmm. and then bring these traditions into new meanings in a new environment. And then I think, you know, people in, in current and contemporary times, creating new families, creating new meanings, creating right. new ideas, like mm-hmm. in spite of it all. Right. I mean, that's how, and it yeah, shouldn't have to happen in spite of it all, but it does happen in spite of it all. Like I'm just and I profoundly mean, I think, moved by the yeah. the thread of resilience that is present in the diaspora. And it is, it is again because because so many iterations of our artistic expression mm. are expressions of that resilience Mm. it is even more insulting when people try to partake in what is a either a commodification or a replication or a stealing of that Mm. expression yes and they don't have to take (laughs) don't have to take part in the experience of the resilience right and also are unwilling to learn the history of the resilience yeah it's kind of like how can you even how can you even 
expect to fully participate in something not knowing the history of it, A. Mm -hmm. And B, how can you even expect to even halfway replicate what it is I am genuinely doing if you don't even have to participate in the experience that brings me to this point? I mean, we were talking about earlier how this happens between queer Black people and non-queer Black people. Yeah. I could say quite frankly this still this happens on a if you want to talk about like xenophobia all happening this happens with me as a black santeria practitioner Mm. and people who purport to take part in orisha culture and worship yeah ignoring the entire history of, of the practice not knowing anything about it right because when you're talking about in Santeria, when you're talking about Ochun, when you're talking about Oatala, when you're talking about Chango, when you're talking about Yemaya, you're talking about Orisha that were birthed out of literal memory. <laughs> Stolen from wherever I came from and had to remember whatever the hell I could. Talk about it amongst the other people who I feel like also we came from a similar place, whatever right, we speak right, a similar right. language a patchwork of memory coming together to try and recreate a religious system yes through slavery through colonialism through oppression yes through all of that yes and so with and then it's kind of like oh yeah but here's my ocho mojo bag (laughs) the audacity (laughs) the audacity (laughs) so you know, it's, it's you know, this... you, you... Wow. <laughs> oh, God, this is the reason why I don't like when people like people know that I've been a student of various traditions, but why I never will straight up say mm-hmm. a, or claim any of it <laughs> because <laughs> I'm not initiated. I'm not like, I don't know. I don't feel that I know enough to stand in that, like, let alone to, to claim it and be blatant yeah i mean i just it's basic respect yeah it's the same exact thing you're saying you know i would never speak i would never claim to be a practitioner or speak to any expertise in something because you're not initiated you don't you're a student of it but you haven't participated you don't have that experience no it's the same exact thing as when you see these choreographers online yeah dealing from vogue stealing from ballroom culture and they've never walked a ball a day in their life yes Mm -hmm. you cannot we've i mean we've been talking about it the entire conversation it's this idea of perceiving something right replicating and mimicking what you think that is but having no idea of where it comes from right and that's not to say that you can't like like I think about growing up in North Dakota, you know, there are lots of reservations around. I was connected to a lot of indigenous peoples. Going to powwows mm-hmm. was a thing that happened. I would never in my entire life think that I could just walk into a circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I no, like if you go, you go with reverence and to be 
in the space of what that event is, you do Mm. not go to try and take part in something that is not part of your history or that you don't understand. And the same is true of Vodou ceremony that I've attended. Like I don't, I remember at one point I accidentally got in the way of a priest. I didn't mean to, someone went (laughs) into a possessive state and I was, I didn't know they were behind me and the priest like shoved me out of the way. And I was like, thank you for gathering me. so that they could get to the spirit that had just come down but it's like I I welcome being tell me where to go what to do like I'm in your space I'm not I'm right I'm learning damn it well that that's a whole other I think what you're describing comes from a place of humility and self-reflection I'm trying to yeah you know and that those aren't qualities that we often celebrate or try to put into practice very regularly in this capitalistic society, right? Right, because we don't perceive you know, them as If we stop and we reflect right. and we stop and we be humble, we would lose profits, right? <laughs> lose okay. Opportunity to make money in some situations. So, right. so that's not something that happens. And, right. and, and I think it's changing. I think more and more people are trying to become re- self-reflexive and, and, and humble when they approach things that are new to them or different from but what they've, so they've understood or experienced. But there's so much um, to unlearn in that process. But it, it's just, it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, um, it is, you know, we, we keep talking about cool. It is now mm-hmm. cool to be healthy (laughs) it's cool to be self-aware or at least perform it right it's cool to be into therapy and uh it's cool to participate or perform uh, participating in tearing down an oppressive power structure Um, and I mean I think even when you talk about you know we're talking about timelines and lineages when you talk about a timeline the history of activism in this country um, and the history of rebellion in this country the only reason there are high points and low points those moments in the the timeline are moments when it was popular (laughs) are moments when it was uh, our moments when it was marketable our moments when it was good tv or good uh radio or good for newspapers um it's we exist in a capitalist society so when you have something of value or when you have something that is deemed valuable Mm. is when people are going to pay attention yeah Um, and so i think again it is um it's a capitalizing on those moments yeah. mm. to try and do everything that you can for your community because we all right. kind of know that when they look away, honey, you know, there's your moment almost. It's, right. it's like right. when they decide to stop listening, when they're, when the cameras aren't on you anymore, when it's not cool anymore, right? people are gonna for real not, support you you don't have the same attention you Mm -hmm. don't have so you have to 
capitalize right. on the moment. Right. And, and, and so that, that it, it, it again brings up this very tricky situation where you're like, <clears throat> I kind of got to let you steal from me a little bit. right right it's like that idea of like shining a beacon into the sky knowing you're going to attract some bugs but that also somebody who may really need you someone who is feeling so alone and so marginalized and looking for community may also Mm -hmm. need the beacon so it's like Mm -hmm. you shine it into the sky you gather Mm -hmm. those people who really need you you swat the flies away Mm -hmm. and then when the light goes off you just get recollect yourselves right until next time Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's, I mean, if we're, you know, we were talking about ballroom earlier. Mm. Ballroom, everybody knows or has a lot, at least these days, has heard of or at least seen one time Paris is Burning. Yeah. That film, for a lot of people in ballroom, is an instance of exploitation. Hmm. Because... Jenny Livingston, the director who, you know, came into the community, got to know some of these people and recorded them and put her yeah. documentary together. Yeah. It has been said, you know, that she didn't pay them Ugh. as much as she should have or didn't pay certain people at all. Um, and there are people alive in ballroom who were in ballroom when that movie was being recorded and they see that movie as very offensive. Yeah. But mm. it was for the reason of that movie. That the world, you know, that movie in com- in conjunction with Madonna also doing the same thing in Vogue with her right, song. Right. It was those two things happening that the world even found out what the hell ballroom was. Right. So both yeah. truths can exist at the same time. <laughs> it's it's so it is it is this instance of like, how much do I leverage how much I'm going to let you take from me hmm. until you pay attention enough to actually hear me out? Right. Uh, and to actually uh, like give a shit. Right. I, and like there, yeah. there are people in that film that have, have been murdered, <laughs> that were uh, murdered during the and, filming. And it's right. And it's all, yeah, it is going back to this, this idea of value. <laughs> How much do I let you take from me until you see not only my product, but me as valuable? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, Everybody loves to talk about shade. Everybody loves to talk about reading. Everybody loves to talk about throwing shade and this and that. But do black trans women matter to you? Right. Because those phrases wouldn't exist without them. Those phrases would not exist without it coming out of the mouth of a black trans woman. Right. So, again, you cannot participate in something. You cannot take part in something or mimic it. Mm-hmm. without at least paying attention to where it comes from, I think. It's right. Just... right. Right. And I think when people get into commodifying it, like you were just saying, they if they value the product more than they value the creators of that product, the people mm-hmm. behind it, then it's easy for people outside who don't know to be like, to just look at the product or the action as um, trivial or deviant or whatever the word might be right because they don't the, yeah. know the history mm-hmm. you know because because mm-hmm. because I, I think too like you know when people look at at um whether it's rap music hip-hop music or or some of the the fashion that people have and the attitudes and, and words and phrases and and people outside that culture will look at this and be like that's so this, that's so that, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. then they try it on and when they see young white people doing it, it's like, well, why are they behaving in such a whatever the negative word might be 
but right. because they don't understand the context, like right. that it was birthed out of resilience. And I dare say resistance, you know, right. that, exactly. that all that has meaning. Like it's not just, it's not just a, a tr- an accessory that right. you just right. throw on. But when you consider it as an accessory, it makes it real easy to discard later. Exactly. Yeah, that's when you know the window right. is closed. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the thing that as I'm listening to us talking and, um, you know, Dio, you said several times the word story mm. and, and, and I know eventually we were going to think about what our creative collaboration yes. could be, but mm. I'm hearing story. <laughs> that, yes. I, I don't know what the story would look like. And, and especially when you said to going back to, um, about how in the new world, so to speak, in the mm. Caribbean, Santeria was birthed from memory. And right. memory is another form of story, right? Ooh, you know, exactly. like, yeah. like, and then dance, dance is a form of story. But, but the, the narrative in Baldwin culture tells a story, right. you know, so I just feel like, and, oh my gosh, and, and to make it even more meta, like, you know, <laughs> stories, the always, stories are such a big part of diaspora, di- diasporic tradition, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. the griots and, and the chantwells and all in Trinidad and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, whatever we decide to do, I feel like story could be involved somewhere. Whatever yes. that. Oh, yeah. That I'm definitely, I am definitely here for that idea. Um, no, yeah, because like you were saying, the idea of story um especially like oral tradition just the passing on of information and knowledge mouth to mouth is Mm -hmm. very important for Mm -hmm. black people it's that is I mean honestly a lot of that has it has to there's this uh sort of love affair that we have with exalting written academia Mm -hmm. in favor of of discarding oral wisdom. Yes. We have this that, idea yes. that if somebody simply told you something, it's simply gossip and hearsay. Mm. Mm. It has to be written down and you need to show me a source for it to be valuable. Yes. That, Which is why, oh. I, mean, I mean, I think that's why, again, part of, you know, this archivalist this telling of a story is important so that it is to show a receipt to show someone Mm. this was recorded this picture was taken this whatever is from 19 blah 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 and if you want to look at what was going around going on around it at that time here's the receipt you know Mm. to tell that story I think we have to do a little bit of recentering as black people of like valuing what people have to say. Yes. Because this idea that it like has to be written down and you have to like Mm -hmm. find the book written on it and it has to have several other sources, which are probably white folks anyway. It's just, Uh, (laughs) yes, it's a little absurd. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That acts because as you were talking about story and Nike, I was thinking to myself, I want, whatever we do around story to be something that is oratory, Mm -hmm. like to be something that Mm -hmm. involves oration and that does not require, even though we have transcripts, you know, we use transcripts for accessibility purposes for all of our episodes that you can like take in the oratory. And the thing that comes to me, and I'm talking from, I guess my own experience to like stories where we find ourselves, right? Like, 
I think about growing up in Trinidad with my great aunt, my great aunt Gloria. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't know half the history of my family on my mother's side that yeah. I do know. And because of her, I I have this sense of who I am and where I belong in my mother's side of the family. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have that on my father's side of the family. So even though I, I know of some people and I know of the connections, right. I don't quite know where my place is in my father's side of the family because I don't have the history of the story. Yes. I'm now learning stories from some of my older siblings, you know? Yeah. And so I think story is such an important way of solidifying, not just solidifying, but also exploring and creating identity. Because identity yeah. becomes a story of who we are, yeah. you know, and and like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I'm just getting all these thoughts at no, the same it's time. A, it's all right. Like, <laughs> like I'm, yeah. I keep thinking to like, you know, when you're talking about Santeria and and similar Afro Afrosyncratic religions in in the Caribbean, like in Trinidad, it was Shango that, that they refer right. to, mm-hmm. you know, the goddess, yeah. and like, like the story that is, you right. know, not just. Not just as an, not just as an entertainment or folklore, mm-hmm. but the story of a people, the story of who we are and how we came to be, and how even having that story is an act of resilience and resistance against the narrative of Christianity in many of these places, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like those are two different stories with two different ways of saying how we are and how we came to be. But it's interesting how one wants to be like the other can't happen in this space, you know. Ah. And, and when you think about how, like, and and to take it into the secular realm, like, this, we don't know the much of the story of ballroom culture or black queer, or black queer tradition mm-hmm. because of patriarchy and heterosexism and transphobia and all those things. We are told that those other stories are other. That's right. exactly it. They're other and they but don't They're not part of this. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But they're but a distraction. Uh, yeah. But they are integral. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Cause to, I mean, it, you have to, it is, it is a, it's a looking at things in their multiplicities. It's, it's to look yes. at history, to look at history in a multidimensional way, instead of trying to find a singular timeline, because right. to tell the history of ballroom, is also to tell a very particular history of New York. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. To tell a very particular history of Harlem. To very, yeah. tell a very particular history of, I mean, for me, even geographically, and I mean, especially with Black queer community, ballroom ties all the way right back to the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Ballroom ties right, like, ballroom itself, those queer balls were happening in Harlem at the turn of the century right mm. yeah so it is it is to look at these things um look at these histories as the formation of a people the story yes of a people, yeah their, their resilience i mean even with we're talking about santeria um and on all these other uh sort of branches that have already orisha present in them in the caribbean in my understanding, historically, a lot of what the Orisha are based upon is Ifa, which is a magnus opus of oral rep- recitation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It has been written down so that white people will respect it. But before <laughs> that, right. it was 
Baba Laos, the idea of a Baba Lao, that person was so impressive because they had remembered and could recite upon command prayers, songs, poems, odu, and then translate that to mean a message for you. That is an yes. oratory skill that values oral tradition and history to the fact that those people that were born of that culture that so valued oral history mm-hmm. no wonder they remembered so much to then survive slavery and put it all back together again right. because right. that's another great thing about oral history and the oral telling of a story even i mean this is the simple benefit of a story is that yeah. telling it over and over and over again forces you to remember it mm-hmm. yes yes and i mean I, it, it, it is this constant recitation of those things and i think what is is nice is that now uh, having the benefit of the internet having the benefit of this universal connectivity mm-hmm. we have the ability to look at those different iterations and recitations at the same time mm-hmm. parallel mm-hmm. and compare and contrast them mm-hmm. and hold them in the same place at one time and be like wait this same thing happened over here either at the same time or in the same exact way mm-hmm. we have the receipt for the fact that history repeats itself Yes. And it's whether or not we want to continue to keep telling the same stories over and over and over again. Um, yeah. That is now currently on the brain. Where we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm turning my my brain now to like logistics, you know, mm-hmm. of this of this story idea just to sort of gather the pieces that we've that we've thrown out there. We're feeling, yeah. we're feeling the story vibe. We're mm-hmm. feeling the idea of, of things being parallel um, mm-hmm. processes, but that don't necessarily have to, like, we don't all have to tell the same story. We can have sort of a, a collaborative, possibly parallel process. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And how, um, I, yeah, now, how's I that mean, hitting? <laughs> I, yeah. I know I see what you're saying. Yeah. I, what immediately strikes me is that we try and like design a little bit of a whether you want to call it an experiment, whether you want whether you want to call it a prompt, mm. but something a bit of a controlled environment, a controlled creative environment in which we can place our parameters or ideas in place, but then allow each of us to sort of come up with our story or what we want to tell within that train. Um, And then perhaps see if synchronicities occur. Oh. Ooh. That sounds really cool. I like your idea of a prompt. Yes. Yes. You know, something that is like the base that we jump off. Right. Like I'm thinking of Zelda Lockhart in the third video collaboration where she came up with that prompt of how do you play when you're prey you know Mm -hmm. like if we were to come up with a prompt of our own that takes you into your own space but then we come back together and see what happens Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Um, i yeah i mean i think the prompt you know and what the 
the control of of your I, I guess the idea or however it, it comes together mm-hmm. um that'll I don't know maybe that'll be the part that's a bit of brainstorming because okay. I mean I as an artist I very specifically tend to focus on like queer black spiritual stories like it's yeah. that very specific intersection but I think that's something that we all can like sort of tangentially exist like there's there's a lot of commonalities within that um not everybody Mm -hmm. has y'all don't participate in ballroom community y'all not so i don't know i don't know what the prompt is i don't know what like the story that we are going to be tasked to tell is or Mm. um but i i do i like this idea of us kind of like being given the idea or being given the responsibility of telling a story, telling them at the same time, mm-hmm. and then seeing if synchronicities, commonalities, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm almost wondering. I'm almost wondering as a prompt whether or not the question of what is the story you are tasked to tell mm. is a mm. prompt in and of itself, or if that's too broad. Mm. It, it, I was. What what kind of was floating in my mind too was may I don't know if this is too narrow going from broad to broad to narrow. <laughs> yeah. But thinking about like um where does your about where your resilience is or where your resilience mm. comes from or or something like that. Cause this that's word's still buzzing in my mind. Okay, how about this then? Uh tell, tell me a story about your resilience. Like, tell me a story in which you were resilient. Ooh. Tell me a story of resilience. Tell me a story about your people's story resilience. Of resilience. Yeah. Something like that, perhaps. Because I did. We definitely were talking about resilience a yes. lot. And I think, as we were saying, our stories often come from testimonies of resilience. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So there's our like research question slash prompt. <laughs> Tell me a story of your resilience. Yeah. Can we talk methodology for a hot second? <laughs> like here's my research brain. What's our method? We then, this would be a part of the, the creative process, looking at them all and then like, however it exists to try yeah. and collage them all together. Collage. Yep. I Mm -hmm. love it. Like Mm -hmm. I'm even thinking too, that like in order to um, ensure that we're not being like influenced by each other's stories when we share, that we should almost Mm -hmm. be recording them separately Mm -hmm. so that when we share them, they are shared in their most authentic original state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And now I feel like I want our audience to sit with the stories when they're done. Mm-hmm. And that can't happen if you have the theme song come back in and we're like, Black Creative Healing is going blah, blah, blah. <laughs> So maybe uh, it's a standalone audio file. Right. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you that they sort of live together, yeah. but separately. So it's literally in the show notes so that if you go in to engage with these stories, you go in knowing <laughs> what you're going into. Right. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, I think it is important to say like this is also the reason why you're only able to listen to it. It's not a written thing, right? Um, yeah, I would say for me, right. um, in our original conversation, we spoke a lot about story and the importance of 
oral traditions, being able to create and tell stories as Black people. Um, I think that something existing orally or only through the uh, sense that it is a story that is to be told um, is important because it, it, A, prioritizes the sharing of knowledge between people, and it, B, emphasizes the fact that this is an experience that is Mm. to be shared and testified, not simply copied down and replicated. Right. Um, So for me, that is definitely why it's important to have this be presented as a story um, and also for it to only be an oral one. Right. And also it's part of the, the reasoning behind why we're choosing to have it stand alone too. That I think Mm -hmm. if we put it in, in the podcast, in the episode, in the context of the conversation, that, yeah, that's nice and convenient, but then you might also lose the experiential nature of it. We want you to come to this story when you are ready to sit with it, or to Mm -hmm. come to these stories when you are ready to sit with them, not just because you already hit play on this thing, and now you're like, well, might as well. (laughs) No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You find the link in the show notes, and you listen when you're ready to fully engage in the experience. Yeah, yeah. I think um, for me, the oral aspect of it invites imagination. You know, it like yeah, I can see in my mind Dio at the altar and what that might look like, and I can see Natasha and her grandmother on the bed. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can see these women walking along through my life. You know, and and however people see that it it might bring up other images that are relevant to them that are personal to them um because I think when I for me when I hear stuff when I hear a good story I'm I I get lost in the emotion behind it I get lost in the images that it evokes you know so I think to have it be a standalone oral presentation invites people to open their own creativity in a way they're open their own receptivity open their mind's eye to and their ears and their hearts to what can be there not just told by us but what can be there for them what might come up for them yes yeah Yeah, I agree I was gonna say I think it it might encourage someone else to tell their story and that not just it's in and not even just in the sense that it inspires them as you're saying you know bringing other things up but since we're talking about an oral tradition especially at a time when it is so important for people to speak up about the things that they have experienced speak up about what is going on you know activate your voice open your mouth yes 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 love it I love it yeah, our prompt could be a prompt for them as well, you know, because mm-hmm. I think there's, as I think of the term Black creative healing, like telling your story can be a part of the healing process, a part of, of where you yeah. reclaim and and get in touch and, with different parts of yourself. Yeah, I know I'm going to be marinating in this, this prompt. Right. Fab. Yeah. Yay. I'm so excited and so grateful. <laughs> this is an yes. excellent conversation. Honestly, thank you for, you know, sharing this space and time. Cause this was, 
y'all 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 got a sister talking y'all was y'all was on yes <laughs> i'm so glad i'm so glad and this, this is i fantastic. mean yeah, yeah yeah just tremendously rich enriching nourishing just energizing conversation so thank you dio yeah. no thank and thank you i was thinking earlier today before i called you i was like this is this is somebody doing the work that like is so niche but so necessary black yeah. people are black people are constantly and resiliently creative yes and connecting that creativity to our own healing is very important yes mm-hmm. yes 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 mm-hmm. yes so thank you thank you thank you all around black creative healing is a platform dedicated to radical conversation mindful collaboration and holistic visioning centering black communities Conversations and arts-based collaborations are facilitated by Natasha Thomas and Adenike Webb and hosted by the Black Music Therapy Network, Incorporated. We wish to extend our thanks to the Black Music Therapy Network for their input and support with the creation and promotion of these episodes. Special thanks to this episode's guest, Giovanni Lebeja. You can find links to past collaborations, as well as current episodes and details on upcoming collaborations by visiting www.blackmtnetwork.org slash black-creative-healing.